conversations that I've had with different ones and different families over the last several weeks that have led me to a passage of Scripture that I want to share with you for just a few minutes this morning. And I'm going to ask that you would turn to Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Some of you know this by heart, but the title of the message this morning is Forget What Needs to Be Forgotten. Forget What Needs to Be Forgotten. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, the Scripture says, Not that I have already attained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have been taken hold of, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on to the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Lord, as we present Your Word this morning, I would ask that Your Holy Spirit anoints Your Word and that the life of God would be released within us. I know that there are people that are dealing with all kinds of issues today, and so take Your Word and apply it as You will so that You can draw those that don't know You into relationship with You and those of us that know You into a deeper relationship. And we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. I want to direct your thoughts this morning to the word forgetting. If you take a Greek concordance and begin to look through the New Testament, looking up the word remember, remembrance, or memory, you will find that the word memory in some sense occurs 72 times in the New Testament. But the word forget, forgetting, thank you so much, and forgotten only occurs 10 times. And six of the ten times, it's used in the context of not forgetting. And so only four times is the word forgotten used in the context of that we are to forget something. So the real focus of the New Testament is not on forgetting, but on remembering. And if any of you have ever been close to anybody who has Alzheimer's, I know that that affects so many different family members of ours and different ones. You know how crucial memory is to understanding your present and your future because without the memory, you don't have a present and you don't really have a future. In fact, I remember Ronald Reagan when he was first diagnosed with Alzheimer's and he was being interviewed. One of the things that he said because he was so quick was he said in a self-deprecating way that endeared him to all of us, there are downsides to having Alzheimer's, but I've also found one upside. I meet new people and new family members every day. The text that we focus on this morning is on forgetting and the sense of forgetting things that are behind. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if our life was like a chalkboard and we could literally get a wet sponge in there and go to the places in our life of things that we wanted just to get rid of and just begin to take that sponge and wipe them off and they no longer would have any effect on our emotions, that they no longer would have any effect on our life and they would no longer be even held on the memory board of the things that we have experienced. But I want you to know that in this Scripture, if you believe that forgetting things are behind means that you can falsely assume that the Scripture implies that there's some magic potion that will help you erase the pain, you will have misinterpreted this scripture. There is no magic portion to wipe away the pain of things that have happened to us. And I know that within the last year or so, for so many of you, some of you have lost a romance or maybe a husband or a wife has walked out on you. Perhaps you faced 
a serious illness in your life and you're still battling it and you don't understand everything that's taking place. Maybe you've gone through or are experiencing right now a financial hardship. Perhaps somebody really close to you has died. How do you blot out something like that? How do you blot out the fact that others may have hurt you in some way that other people don't know about? And you're dealing with the pain of that thing. And I want you to know something today. When the Scripture says forgetting the things that are behind, it doesn't mean that you'll never remember them again. It doesn't mean that they won't necessarily cause you pain from time to time. Because I submit to you that only God can forgive and forget. Only God can forgive and forget. He can forget because the Scripture tells us in Psalm chapter 103, verse 12, that as far as the east is from the west, that far He has removed your sins from you, not to remember them anymore. Now, to you and to me, that means I can celebrate because there are some things in my life I'm glad He doesn't remember anymore. I'm glad that when I laid them at the altar and He covered them with His blood and forgave me and made me part of His family, that He erased and forgot that aspect of my life. But what God can seemingly do very easily is pretty significant for us because there are things that have affected us both positively and negatively that are still a memory to us. And it's locked within our mental capacity, and we simply can't forget it. So given the fact that we can't forget it, what does the Apostle Paul mean then when he says to us, forgetting those things which are behind? How are we to interpret that? How are we to apply that? Because now we understand that it's impossible for us to forget some of those things. I want to suggest to you that from the letter that he wrote to the church at Philippi, There are five strategies that Paul used to help him in this battle and also, I believe, have given to us to help us forget things that need to be forgotten. Unfortunately, I did not have a chance to get this outline to our bulletin, so in the notes section, you're going to have to write down these if you want to keep them with you. And the first strategy that we can use is we forget by being grateful. We forget by being grateful. Gratitude alone can erase a lot of hurt and negative things that have happened in our life. I think back of the many missions trips that I have gone on, and I have had opportunity to go on trips and lead students, and even our church has gone on places, and and there were those that really, really struggled to get the money together to go on those, and I've come from some backgrounds of financial hardship, but I want you to know perspective is an amazing thing when you get to places like Haiti, and you get to places like the dumps in Peru, places like Calcutta, India, and suddenly you begin to recognize that even when things seem bad for us, we have things a whole lot better than the rest of the world. And we come back from trips like that with a gratefulness that has developed within our heart that helps us to recognize we don't have things so bad from time to time. And it's clear by reading Paul's letter to the Philippians that in his mind, that his mind is not a blank tablet. He remembers these believers, just as I remember you and you remember me. And Paul looks back on his experience with the Philippian church, and I'm sure he thought about a lot of those early days when he had started that church and began to think back to the days when Acts chapter 16 was being written, and it talked about where Lydia was the first to come to the Lord. 
Lydia was a rather wealthy Asiatic lady. We know she was wealthy because she made designer clothes out of purple. And she had a home big enough to house four members of the apostolic team who had come to Philippi. And then the next one that came to Christ was a slave girl who had been demon-possessed. And she worked for less than minimum wage because she was a slave and she was probably a Greek. And then there was a Roman jailer who received Christ and became part of that church in its early part and, and was to us the third convert of that church. And the three charter members of the Philippi church, then he was looking at them and saying, you're unlike each other. There's Lydia, there's a slave girl and a, and a jailer. And yet God began to take these people from different backgrounds and plant them together in a sense of unity in a church. I want you to know something. I love the diversity of our church. We are not diverse enough yet. We need every nation that's represented within our community represented within our congregation. We need the diversity of culture, and only God can bring people like that together to enjoy fellowship in the house of the Lord. A number of years ago, I had a chance to preach at the Mark Buntain Memorial Assembly of God Church in Calcutta, India. Now, I was told that when I went there that the caste system of India was no longer in place, but I want you to know they may governmentally say that, but in practice, it still was alive and well. But it was the first place that I went to that people were entering into the church and they had come from the lowest caste that were the slaves of everybody all the way to the highest caste, a man that had come in that was one of the wealthier ones and, and suddenly caste didn't make any difference. What they had in their back didn't make any difference as they entered together and all of these people began to worship together and I thought about the church at Philippi and how grateful Paul was for the fact that people of different backgrounds and different ages and different generations could all come together and be family in the presence of God. We have a lot to be thankful for and a lot to be grateful for. And I'm grateful for every one of you. And sometimes being grateful is the first thing that we need to do to help us forget the things that are in the past. Jesus brings different people not only near to one another, but they do so as He brings them near to Him. And He administered Paul in such close relationship with all of these people. He'd seen things happen in churches. He'd seen people come in and, and try to draw them away. And with all of the things that could have been bitter in his heart, he chose to be grateful about the things that he had. He talks about his chains in the letter of Philippians. He's been chained to soldiers guarding him while he was in house arrest. He waited to go before Nero. It had been a tough five years. You would expect and you could certainly excuse him if in the Philippi letter you would find him listing complaint after complaint about how bad things had been and how hard things had been in his life. And instead, when you read this letter, you find that it is called the New Testament letter of joy, that from his chains he begins again and again to express gratitude to God and to people. He uses the words joy and rejoicing continually throughout his letter. He's filled with gratitude. He is forgetting all the unpleasant things and replacing it with something else. Gratitude so they can be thankful for who he is and where he is in his relationships. He says to the Philippian believers, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers to you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And in 1 7, he says, I have you in my heart. In other words, here's a man that in the middle of chains and in the middle of hardships, 
can only be grateful for the relationships that He has in Christ. He chooses to be grateful and put things behind Him. What a wonderful thing to focus not on the hurts, but to focus on the helps. To focus on the things that we are grateful for. And we can choose to remember people who hurt us, or we can choose to remember the people who help us. And if we have grateful hearts, we'll remember the good things. Because being grateful can help us put some of those things behind us. We forget by being grateful. second strategy that he outlines for us is we forget by repenting. We forget by repenting. Now that doesn't mean that what you repent of is blotted out necessarily in the minds of the person that you may need to apologize to. It simply means that one of the ways of caring... One of the ways of working past things is to begin to repent for the wrongs that you have done. Repent is not a word that's popular today. I want to tell you that. In fact, we had a missionary that visited us here unexpectedly one time, and as they left, they told me, they said, I am so glad that you still use the word repent. So we don't hear that very much anymore. Because repent indicates to us that there's something that we've done wrong, and we live in a society that tells us nothing we do is wrong that everything that we do is all right, as long as it's all right in our minds and we set our own ideas of what is right and wrong, don't tell me I'm wrong because what's wrong for you may not be wrong for me. And we have this very polluted idea of right and wrong. I want you to know something. When God gets a hold of your life, instantaneously through the working of the Holy Spirit, He begins to reveal things in our life that are wrong. And He draws us to a place of repentance. Repenting simply means I changed my mind. I changed my mind. And so when he begins to talk to us about repenting, there are ways that we need to do that. And all of us who have come to Christ have had a moment of repentance. Paul had it. In Philippians 3, he talks about it where he goes through his pedigree. And this is what he said. He says, I'm a person who was well advanced in his religion, but I didn't have a relationship with God. Does that sound like a lot of our world? They are religious with no relationship. The do's and don'ts without the joy of being in His presence. Give me something to do and I can do it, but when I'm done, I expect God to respond in this way. That sounds like our world today. Paul said, I'd live that way. He realized that religion without relationship is meaningless. He said, I laid it all aside. I considered it as dung. I considered everything as dung. And he says, I looked at the life of regulation of trying to be a religious person without having a relationship with God, and I laid it aside. In other words, I reconsidered and I changed my mind. God helped me to change my mind. And the most basic form of repentance is changing your mind about who Jesus is. I've had numbers of conversations with people who said, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in anything. And yet as you begin to talk to them, there is this deep hope within them somewhere that there is a God, that there is a higher power, somebody that can help them when they need it because I don't care how strong you think you are. There's moments in life you need the shoulder of the Savior to lean on. And we change our mind about Christ. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 38 describes that after the power of Pentecost had fallen, it said they were cut to the heart when Peter preached because he talked to them and said that they had killed the one who rose again from the dead and on the third day 
he rose again. And then they said, what must we do to be saved? And Peter said, repent. In other words, reconsider what you did. The one whom you crucified, God exalted by raising him from the dead, and 3,000 people reconsidered or repented that day and received Jesus Christ as their Savior. I know that in a gathering like this today, there are some of you that are struggling with your faith. Some of you are struggling with reasons. There are things that have been happening in your life, and your excuse is, if God was real, this wouldn't happen. I want you to know something. God never said that when you come into relationship with Him that you would have a perfect life on this earth. What He did say is if you come into relationship with Him, that He would give you life and that more abundantly. But if you do not choose Him, you're going to be running with one who is a killer and a destroyer and a stealer of your life and joy. Make things look good on the surface, but underneath there's nothing but destruction. He also says to us that this life and where we live here is not our home. If things get too good here... We're going to quit looking forward to the perfection that awaits us on the other side. And so he says, I want you to change your mind about me, invite me into your life, and let me bring life in that abundantly to you. Let me walk with you in this life. Let me prove myself to you. You give Jesus a chance and he'll come running to you. How many stories have we heard about people who felt like they had reached the end and couldn't do it anymore? I heard one this week about a man who couldn't take it anymore and he stood there with a gun in his mouth and he said, God, you've got one chance. If I don't feel your presence and if you're not real, I'm pulling this trigger. And he said, instantly, a flood flooded him from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. The gun dropped out of his hands. He fell to his knees and God began to speak to his heart. I've been waiting for this opportunity for you to give me a chance to change your mind. 